Now, if you were to ask me what the most um, gratifying thing that occurred when we adopted our daughter, Anna, I know I've already started talking about her a little bit this morning, but the most gratifying thing after looking back after four years is really the, the powerful and the, the power of purposeful covenantal love. Um, when Abby and I chose unreservedly to love a baby that was not biologically ours, I discovered an overwhelming sense of attachment that has only grown greater with time. And I use the word covenantal purposefully because, you know, we tend to associate that word with marriage. But there is, however, a binding, loyal love that parents have for children that maybe doesn't need to be articulated, but if we don't pay reference to it, we might forget that there is a bind, a, a, a binding of, that's created through a love and loyalty to our children. Um, I think that this is something that we, we all well understand. In fact, Jesus, in the New Testament, used the parental-child relationship and family dynamic to heighten the kind of loyalty that God requires of disciples. He said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And He's illustrating the kind of loving, loyal, faithful commitment that he requires of a disciple that it's even greater than the kind of love that we experience in a family. Because loyalty in a family is a a beautiful display of God's covenant love. In the Old Testament, actually, when thinking about family, um, made it the death penalty, if a child would ever um, strike their parents um, or even curse their parents, that was the degree of loyalty that was expected within a family environment. So when Jesus here elevates this affection for God over family love, he's illustrating the degree of loyalty that's required of a person to be a disciple of Christ. And that loyal love for God ought to be unreserved. Nothing held back. And when God looks upon his own people, he has an unreserved perspective as he looks at you, his child. And for a relationship of loyal love to exist, we have to as well give ourselves unreservedly to God. He gives himself unreservedly for us. It just makes sense. That's what relationship is. Um, And I think about this truth. You look at this world. Do you think that God looks upon people and he sees a 
loyal commitment to one another and also to him. I mean, loyal love, I think, is sometimes looked at as duty. Um, It shows up in our world in interesting places. It shows up in, yes, our commitment to God, but to family, yes, but also sometimes to country, right? And we're this... This weekend, remembering those who were veterans who who gave their life in loyal commitment. And some of them, this is not Memorial Day, but some gave the ultimate sacrifice for their country. But thankful for those who have served as veterans in war, out of duty, yes, but also out of loyalty. We take for granted that they... um, some people go AWOL, some people leave, but those who stay in and pay their, with their lives and commitment is really a beautiful display of that loyal love. I think that we all take for granted the fact that we have an inalienable rights here as Americans. But do you know we also have inalienable responsibility God requires of us a loyal love in response to his love towards us. And for this reciprocation, for this relationship to occur, we are sinners, and it's not going to happen unless God gives us a heart to love him. We have to be born into the family. We have to be adopted into God's family. And adoption is a gracious act by which God unreservedly gives himself to us. And so we ought to then give ourselves unreservedly to him. And this is the the big idea, and we're going to get into the text now. I have to set up the idea here that we're going to unpack as we look at the text. But the truth is that God unreservedly gives himself to his family. Genesis 48, 49 is a detailed account of the passing on of the Abrahamic promise, the covenant, God's declared loyalty to Abraham and all his descendants, his family. And in this event, we see Jacob adopting formally two of Joseph's sons and elevating them to a place of equality among the other tribal leaders and tribal heads. And in this, we actually can see the picture of spiritual adoption in which God adopts us. God elevates us and puts us into the family, and he makes commitment to us. So this morning, I want us to see three beautiful expressions of blessing that come from the adoption, the adoption that we have spiritually because of Christ and God's calling to us. So let's read verses 1 to 12. Verses 1 to 12, we have a description of, and I I see principled, that there is the adoption and the calling of God which are forever. Let's look at these verses, verse 1 to 12. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength, and he sat up in bed. 
And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the family of Canaan, excuse me, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for the everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours, and they shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When, I, when Israel saw Joseph's son, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. In this section, I see adoption. I see the calling of God, and that there is eternity in view. That when God adopts and he calls, these things are forever. Um, I see a timelessness and a freedom in this text. A timelessness in which, as Moses is writing here, um, he actually writes out of chronological order. It's a little subtle detail. But what he does, he blends the years and events together. Um, If you remember last chapter, 47, verse 28, we read, And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. And so the days of Jacob of, and the years of his life were 147 years. So between chapter 47 and 48, we have the crunching of time into um, together. And as you read this event, don't you stop and think, well, is this the first time that Jacob is seeing his grandchildren? No, he had seen his grandchildren 17 years ago, and actually this event is connected to 17 years ago. But Moses is writing here, not, not, to, not to diminish the historicity, but he's, he's blending these ideas together. And I see in this blending of ideas that time doesn't matter to God. He's, he's purposely blending these things to draw our attention to the timeless purpose of God. See, in verse 8, Um, This historical note, yes, this is a historical event that actually occurred. Verse 8 says, when Israel saw his sons, he said, who are these? And in this, there's a blending of events. Look at verse 12. I'll just note here in verse 12. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Now, 
I don't know how it would occur if 17 years later he had a 18-year-old man sitting on his knee. That just wouldn't go well. Um, if I were to have Adam and Noah sit on my knee, I wouldn't recover. Um, maybe when they're toddlers, I could handle that. And so what's happening here is that Moses is blending these events together and really, in the everlasting nature of God, time doesn't matter. And when God called Abraham and created a family relationship with Abraham, think about that, God adopting Abraham. He not only adopted Abraham, but he adopted all the descendants and in that, <laughs> Abraham entered a relationship with someone who was eternal and forever. And so the promises that were made to Abraham are not affected by time because God is not constrained by time. We live with time. And so there is, in the calling of Abraham, there is also the calling of Isaac. There is the calling of Jacob. There is the calling of these two boys that we're looking at in this text here. And that all occurring in the mind of God in eternity. There is a freedom here that I see in verse 5 um, in God's adopting and calling that is transcend our natural thinking. In verse 5, he takes the two boys. He says, now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. See, Jacob is taking his own grandsons and elevating them to the status of son with rights, with, um, with a... Um, with privileges. And in this case, he's elevating them to the tribal leader status. Now, if you know the history and you've read through the Old Testament, you'll see um, the 12 tribes of Israel settling in the land. Actually, there were technically 13. Um, Levi didn't have territorial land rights, but they had little cities that were scattered throughout. There is no tribe called Joseph. There is a tribe that's called Ephraim and Manasseh. And so by the double portioning of the allotment here, God is elevating the two sons up to status of the rest of the brothers. A tremendous act of God's grace. And he's absolutely free to do this. God is free to overturn our expectations anytime he wants. And uh, it's helpful for us to remember that God's viewpoint is on a much greater plane than ours. For, some, for example, sometimes people will say that the youth are the future of the church. And I look at this event that I'm seeing here and I would say, well, maybe. Maybe. And in the great mind, in the mind of God, God's concern is to build the church, and he's not constrained by doing it out of the church nursery. He builds the church by bringing the word to unbelievers and making them born again. That's how he operates. And when Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he was ready to go outside of traditional 
expectation. God is able to make from stones children. God is not constrained at all. And when God redeems, he's working to build a family that goes beyond and even those who have not yet even been born here today. There is a future, and God is the one who redeems from the future those who will be his. Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 5, we, we read in our scripture text this morning that Paul is very aware of these realities. I know that these can be very complex, hard to wrap our minds around, but he's speaking on a theological level that's up here when we sometimes live down in here. And Paul says, God chose us in him, that is in Christ, in the family of Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to him as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, we ought to look at that and be encouraged because you may have children that you have raised in the church and they have abandoned and they've walked away. Perhaps you, like Jacob, will one day say, I never thought I would live to see the day in which my children would share the faith that I share. In the similar way, Jacob never thought he would see Joseph again. There is a reality in which God is doing something beyond our horizon. We can't see what God is doing. And as much as we love our children, God is able to draw those children to himself at any time of his choosing. We as disciples have to live with faith that God is able to do so. And God is able even out of unbelieving children to raise up grandchildren who will accept and embrace Christ. We sometimes will look at the, the children that have abandoned Christ and say, well, it's done, it's over. We don't know that there might be a third, another generation after them that comes from our own seed that embraces Christ. God is doing a work, and I think that we ought to take courage in that. Uh, the second idea here comes out of verses 13 to 22. Uh, the adoption and the calling of God are forever, and secondly, the dominion and election of God are absolute. Absolute. Verse 13 to 22, let's read on. And we read, And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near to him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers and Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. In them let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. He took his father's hands to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. 
And Joseph said to his father, not this way. My father, since this one on is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day and said, By you, Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. And in this text that we just read, I see that the dominion and the election of God are absolute. He, God is on one level doing things that we cannot see. And in this passage, we see a little bit of a, it's like there's, this is like an explanation, like how is it that Ephraim became greater than Manasseh? There's an explanation, verse 2, verse 22, um, not verse 22, verse 20. And so he blessed them this day, and, and at the end of the blessing, it says, and he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So it's kind of like this, this is a retelling so that we understand what happened, that now Ephraim is so large in the land of Israel, and Manasseh is so big too, but not as big as Ephraim. And uh, that's on one level what's going, but on a higher level, there is, there is a working of God here, which is for our encouragement, and there's a couple of words that I want to share uh, that I see in this text. And the first is the word predestination. In these verses, we have a remarkably ironic moment. Did you catch it? Jacob has become his father. You know, I mean, did you catch that? I mean, Isaac, remember Isaac was the one who was blind and Jacob, as a boy, had gone in and tricked him to get the blessing, right? Jacob has become his own father. And I know that when I was young, there were things that you, I used to find very irritating about my father. And guess what? I do them now. I'm sorry, boys, but uh, that may be true for you. <laughs> Jacob is now blind like his father. And notice in verse 17 that, that this act of switching of the hands, it, it displeases Joseph. He's, he's irritated by this. And yet, he, uh, he tries to fix the apparent problem, yet Jacob refuses to move his hands, and he follows through with the blessing he knows that God wants him to make. Now, it's important for us to reflect a little bit here on what's going on because Jacob, as well, had at one time been the younger. And his mother, Rebecca, had been carrying twins. And in her womb, there was a lot of agitation and movement. And she was anxious about what was going on. And so she sought the Lord. And in the seeking of the Lord, she received this message from the Lord 
In Genesis 25, verse 23, it says, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That's a remarkable statement of God. That he has the right, before these children are born, to express his intention to call them into relationship with himself. In our Romans Bible study, we, we've been working through the whole uh, epistle, and we came to Romans chapter 9 and verse 10 through 12, where Paul quotes these verses, and this is what Paul said. And Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, quote, the older will serve the younger. I'm going to stop right there in the quotation. See, Jacob had been chosen by God even before he was born. That he would be um, blessed in a unique way with having a relationship uniquely with God. And this is helpful for us to understand that, that either unborn or born as these two boys are, God's purpose of election continues. And this is good news. Because when God made his promise to Abraham, his purpose of election included also the nations, the Gentiles, us. And out of all the nations, there are people being redeemed and saved. And God anticipated all of this before any of us were ever born. Romans chapter 8, uh, the chapter before uh, in Romans, Paul said, For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, in this text, what we see is that God is working. These children are born. Jacob is being submissive to the unique purpose of election and calling. And the reality is, is that God is working through humanity. God is working through a person like Jacob to bring clarity and understanding to God's calling. And we, as believers even today, we take the gospel out to every creature. And we declare the good news to every creature. And the word that is preached is going to be an effective word. Causing hearts to become open and hearts to become soft. And God's purpose of calling will transpire. God used Jacob to communicate the truth. God also uses us to communicate the truth. And there's great hope in this that when we do speak, there is an effect that we will see. And so, I know that's kind of a big thought to hold on to this morning. 
But there is encouragement that comes from this that's built on the next point of thought and observation here is that there is an eternal security that comes out of this. Eternal security. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Do you know that text in Romans chapter 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. God does not unadopt us. Think about that. God has seen you and brought the word of the gospel to you, and when you believed, you were brought into the family of God, and he will not unadopt you. When Abby and I were considering adoption, we looked into several countries before we were led to consider Ethiopia. And the first country that we considered was here in America. And uh, for various reasons I can't get into, we were counseled to consider other options, um, and the reasons were, were good. And so we were moved at that point to consider Russia. Um, we were really right about to contract with an agency to assist us in finding and locating a child in Russia. And within moments, we heard on the news that Russia had closed down all foreign adoptions to the United States. And do you know what that may have caused this? Well, just prior to this, within, within the year, the Russian government was horrified when a young boy who had been adopted to a family in Texas had him sent home on a plane with a handwritten note requesting to be returned. That's heartbreaking. And you know, we can think about so many kinds of social injustice which do not demonstrate a covenant loyalty that should be there. Biological children can be hurt just as well as those who are being adopted. But we, we are the object, though, of God's unfailing, loyal love. And so... When we do experience cuts and bruises in this world, we can say with Paul that we know that all things work together for good who love God. All these things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We have been adopted into his family and he will never unadopt us. Second, a uh, third point here, third word that I see in this, this passage, in this, I'm seeing the word providence. And before we, we move on to the last point of our message this morning, it's important for us to see providence. Because we remember that Jacob was the younger. And he had grown up hearing all of those stories about, you know, the favor that would be his. And when his mother heard that Isaac was going to bless Esau instead and had sent him out into the field to go get a... Uh, uh, some, some meat for him and prepare it for him the way he liked it and then he was going to be blessed. Um, Mom got excited. She got anxious. And she tried to create a plan to help God keep his promise. How did that go? It didn't go. What if... He had not tried to deceive his father and had submitted to the providence of God to open a way for the blessing to be his. 
What if he had been like David, who we will learn about in Sunday school this morning? Sorry, Jeremy. David, who believed that God would keep his promise to have him one day sit upon the throne, that he wouldn't need to go and slit the throat of his rival Saul. He had learned, he, that is Jacob here, has learned through experience that it's best to let God work out what he says he is going to do. And here he learned that God, yes, was gracious even to to give him the blessings. And even though he had done wrong, here he had never expected to see Joseph, let alone his own grandchildren. He's not going to mess up the blessing that he is to transfer to these boys. He has learned through providence that when God makes a promise, no matter what, he's going to make it happen. And so he uses people and events, and, and he's accomplishing a plan, and we can't get in the way of it. So why fight it? Why fight it? Submit to it, to God's providential dealing. And so instead of when Joseph's saying, no, 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 Dad, take your hand off and put it over here on Manasseh's head because he's the oldest one, he said, I know, my son, I know. And he submits to the divine providence of God. This is, what, this is what this doctrine of adoption is for us. It's a, a blessing, and it helps us to order our steps and not to lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him because he will direct our paths. The last point, I think, is for our great encouragement, and it comes from just the two verses of that blessing, verses 15 and 16. I already read them, but verses 15 and 16 you note the, the word choice that, that uh, Jacob makes. Um, and I want us to see how that God's care and concern are flawless. So the God who adopts, who predestines, who has a choice, who, who, who brings us into his family, that means that we will never be unadopted, but we are also the object of his care and concern. Um, The first word I want to highlight here is the word God in verse 3. And I want to add to it the word almighty because he referred to it in verse 3. Look at verse 3 of chapter 48. It says, And Jacob said to Joseph, God almighty appeared to me. And so when he comes to this blessing, this is the view he has of the God who before him moved with his father's. God Almighty is the one. El Shaddai. This is the most common name for God in the scriptures. Um, It was often used um, in the book of Genesis. Um, It's not until we get to the book of Exodus and the burning bush that we hear Yahweh or Jehovah. But it simply means that God is able. God is able. Other points in Scripture, we hear things like, with God, all things are possible. And the Almighty God does what he does for his own glory, but he also does for the good of his family. And it should lead us to ask ourselves, why is it that we worry? Why do we worry? We serve the Almighty God, whose thoughts about us are more numerous than the sands on the seashore. 
Uh, Abby and I, in September, took a little 20th year, 20th anniversary getaway in September. We went to Cape May, where we had been 20 years before. And uh, there was, uh, there's a, at Cape May Point, if you've been there, there is a, a World War II bunker that's sitting there. And uh, 20 years ago, Abby and I could walk and almost go underneath of it because the pilings were exposed, because the sand had moved itself. That was 20 years ago. After 20 years ago, 20 years, guess what? The sand was back. And the movement of the sand upon the seashore is just overwhelming. You think about the tons of sand that move about in the ocean that 60 years ago when, when it was a part of the World War II defense line, there was also so much soil that you could actually, it was like underground. I think over 60 years of, of, of sand moving and, and then returning, and then that's compared to the thoughts that God has for us. Psalm 139, 17 to 18 says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. That should just encourage us to exhibit the same kind of loyal love for the one who loves us in this way. The second word I want to highlight here is right in verse 15 where he describes God as being my shepherd. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. I wonder if these were the inspirational words that David had in mind when he penned Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want you know, sheep have a very good peripheral vision. They, they actually can they get their eyes on the side of their heads. They can actually kind of see the periphery real well, but they can't see what's right in front of them. They have a poor depth perception, and, and so they need to have a shepherd to lead them who can see what's coming in, a fo- in front of them. And just as a good shepherd will lead sheep towards green pastures beside the still waters and in the path of righteousness and through the valley of the shadow of death so that we don't have to fear any evil. Jacob has been through a lot. He's not been the best of sheep. But he has found that his God, the almighty God, has kept every word for him and he is willing now to follow him into eternity. We need to remember that that God is concerned about our physical well-beings, but you know, God is most concerned with our souls. He wants our hearts. A third word that I'm going to look at here, and then we'll be done, is in verse 16 where he describes God as being a redeemer. As a redeemer. And the the angel who has redeemed me from all evil... God is a reliable redeemer. If you're not familiar with the word redeemer, it refers to somebody who buys back a person out of debt or bondage. The redeemer figure is very large in what Bible story? Ruth. The story of Ruth. 
Naomi and her husband abandoned Israel during a time of famine and they went to a foreign land and they had to mortgage their land. And then everything went south in Moab and then they returned to the land. They had no resources to redeem, to buy back the mortgage. It now was in danger of transferring into another family. And as the story goes, you know the story, Boaz is described as the redeemer, kinsman. The one who exercises his responsibility to buy back the family farm so that it doesn't pass out of the family. And he marries Ruth and raises up children who will take responsibility of that land. What does it mean for God to be a redeemer for Jacob? This is what it means. God had adopted Jacob as his own son, making himself kinfolk to Jacob. And this means that Jacob had on his side the almighty God who was committed to him. Even when his own family like Laban and Esau were trying to kill him, he had a redeemer who would salvage and reclaim him. Jacob is saying here that that God will be committed to these boys just as he has been committed to him. That's a loyal love. And this is the big idea in this text, is that God unreservedly gives himself to his family. And adoption is that gracious act by which God unreservedly gives himself to his family. Now the application that comes from this is something that we will have to ask and answer in our own hearts. Do we give ourselves unreservedly to God? Romans 12, 1 through 2, and I'll just quote verse 1, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Did you catch that? It's by the mercy of God that you have been adopted into the family of God. Will you not, because of that unreserved love towards you, Return that affection and give yourself unreservedly to God. Let's pray.